Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a three-part jumbo show today. First, we'll dive into the results of the annual Freedom on the Net report from Freedom House. Then, we're going to look at one place where internet freedoms are at risk, Canada, where a new proposal to regulate online harms looms. And then, we're going to talk about the complexity of generating policies for content management on social media and how a well-crafted, multi-stakeholder approach can help. I think you'll hear connections between each discussion. First up is Ali Funk, Senior Research Analyst for Technology and Democracy and an expert on human rights in the digital age at Freedom House. She has a particular focus on free expression, privacy, surveillance, and censorship. She's one of the co-authors with Adrian Chavaz of the new Freedom House Freedom on the Net report. Freedom House is a nonprofit think tank that advances democratic ideas, and the report assesses internet freedom in 70 countries, accounting for 88% of the world's internet users. The report covers developments between June 2020 and May 2021, and it's not a pretty picture. Here's Allie. My name is Allie Funk. I'm a senior research analyst for technology and democracy at Freedom House, and I run our Freedom on the Net report. You are one of two co-authors of this report uh, with uh, Adrian Shabazz, um, which came out uh, on Tuesday. Tell me a little bit about the history of the thing, because this is 11 years running now. Yeah, so Freedom on the Net, uh, we started 12 years ago. The first year was a a very small pilot, um, but doing it consistently since 2011. Um, We currently cover 70 different countries around the world, which is about 88% or so of the world's internet population. So we're really interested in how countries rank on internet freedom, which we define simply as the rights you have offline, are they protected online? So we look at things like, can people get online in a country? How expensive is internet access? Is the regulatory environment free and fair? Um, Do you have a lot of choice of service providers? Then we look at what does the internet look like in that country? Are websites locked? Are there internet shutdowns? Is there a lot of disinformation? And then sort of the last thing we look at is, are people's rights protected when they're participating online? So things like free expression, surveillance, privacy, due process, and other sort of fundamental freedoms uh, and whether they're protected or not. So this year's installment, uh, unfortunately, the trend is very clear. Uh, Internet freedom is declining yet again. You point to Myanmar, 14-point score decline is the largest uh, since the project began. But there are a variety of other bits of bad news. Uh, The U.S.'s score declined. A couple of bright spots, I guess. Iceland, small country of 350,000, doing pretty well. Let's just talk about a couple of the, of the specific ones. And, you know, most of my listeners are, are in the United States, so it might make sense to start there. So, yes, the United States, uh, this is our fifth year in a row that we've seen the, the country decline for Internet freedom. Um, this year, it was really around how sort of the online landscape uh, was just saturated with election related disinformation um, and contributed to our, a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th that I think um, we all remember really clearly. So while the U.S. is ranked free still in our index, 
Uh, it's tied for 12th with Australia compared to where it was last year at seventh place um, globally. So, you know, one of the big, big issues that I just alluded to has to do with just the rise of false and conspiratorial content online, particularly around the elections, concerningly sort of spread by President Trump himself at the time, his family members, uh, you know, even right wing politicians in the Republican Party, as well as sort of these fringe news outlets and how sort of, you know, just the rapid spread of baseless claims or electoral fraud or mail-in voting galvanized folks to really go to the Capitol in, in January and sort of the role that Trump played uh, in inciting the mob to really halt the election results, which is, you know, fundamentally shook the foundation of the American political system in a way that we have not seen um, in recent years in the U.S., And then just some other issues that I think, you know, are deeply concerning that didn't lead to a score decline this year, but have in previous years has to do with just disproportionate surveillance. Um, We don't have strong privacy protections in the U.S. that limit how local law enforcement, state law enforcement and federal authorities can surveil online sort of activity. So you see particularly around protests like the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer um, or, you know, at border areas and at airports. Federal authorities sort of monitoring social media platforms. Um, They often claim they're trying to respond to alleged violence. um, But, you know, our report and the countless sort of research and and FOIA requests of other civil society groups have shown that it's it's going after First Amendment protected activity um, of people just expressing themselves. So, I mean, one of the contradictions in that is... I suppose to some extent, you know, you listen to the FBI and officials from the DHS who say, you know, we weren't able to pursue all these leads from social media because we were concerned about people's civil rights. Whereas on the other hand, you know, you point to encroaching on those rights when looking at, uh, you know, racial justice protests. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think you hear this a lot anytime you sort of um, look at sort of offline attacks or violence or sort of crises around national security, a lot of sort of law enforcement agencies, police agencies are argue, well, we didn't have the tools necessary. So we need increased power in order to conduct surveillance. Or, you know, you see this a lot now, even with like facial recognition, you know, I'm kind of thinking post 9-11 time and and how a lot of the powers that we gave to federal and local law enforcement post 9-11 now have sort of entrenched as sort of just like normalized surveillance powers that now it's really hard to roll back. So, you know, I think there are a lot of sort of issues with information that law enforcement had around January 6th that either wasn't taken as seriously as maybe it should have, or just, you know, there's all the investigations about the Capitol Police. But I think generally, you know, we still don't have strong regulations about how social media monitoring can take place. Um, or even questions about whether it should take place because it's, you're kind of going after everybody online um, to find a needle in a haystack. So is that actually like a proportionate surveillance question? I would argue no. Um, I think there should be restrictions on sort of how authorities can surveil social media, what they can do with the information that they collect, and then how, you know, once they collect that social media information, who they can share it to. Because right now it's really a free-for-all. So if a local police officer or department gets it, they can share it with ICE or, you know, Customs and Border Protection, who then could maybe share it with a foreign government um, or like a foreign ally. So there's really just no limitations on what they can do. 
Another contradiction, I suppose, in the, the U.S. report, at least from my reading, it is a free environment, as you, as you point out, um, despite maybe having, having lost some standing, and does not contain many of the problems that you refer to in other less free parts of the world. On some level, is, is the problem in the U.S. almost too much internet freedom? You know, when you, when you point to a saturation of disinformation as being kind of, you know, impediment to potentially to democracy, which I guess would be the ultimate rights backslide if we were to lose our democracy. You know, how, I don't know. How do you square that in your head? Did you think about it that way when, when you and Adrian were putting the report together? Great question. I mean, I think it first comes down to fundamentally, how do you define freedom and how do you define Internet freedom more specifically? And the way we look at it is it's not this sort of hands-off approach. Part of sort of protecting human rights and and protecting democracy and freedom means that the government has positive obligations to ensure people's rights. It's not just about leaving people alone. It's making sure that they can be protected. Now, whether that means they're protected from, you know, private company abuse, from government abuse, or, you know, ordinary people in everyday life. So I think just, you know, our framing around internet freedom means the government does have a responsibility to protect folks. Now, how does that happen in practice? And I think this is where when we're looking at the U.S. and, you know, pretty much our global finding this year was how a sort of like the laissez-faire approach to the tech industry has sort of just created all these opportunities for like bad things, whether that is the disinformation, online harassment, online hate, or sort of the foreign interference, electoral interference we talk about sort of like with the Russian government and increasingly sort of how the Chinese government's getting involved in sort of information operations online. And this laissez-faire approach to the tech industry was really, you know, pushed by the U.S. Arguably, there's no other country that's done more to get the internet at the global scale that it is um, than the U.S. But we've sort of played, you know, a backseat role in in what we can do to craft an internet in recent years that protects human rights. And I think we're we're increasingly looking toward the EU for that, whether you're looking at GDPR or some of the new laws around the you know, Digital Services Act or Digital Markets Act, because the U.S. has not played a leading role in sort of cyber diplomacy and, and some of these really tough questions. And now we're sort of dealing with the real impact of what that looks like. And it's sort of, like we said, the, the rapid spread of disinformation, the total lack of transparency um, that we're seeing, you know, issues with how our algorithmic systems on platforms pushing content or polarized information to folks. Um, and what that means for sort of our democracy as a whole. Um, you do point out in particular states that there is concerning legislation which could, in fact, limit Internet freedoms. At the federal level, it's kind of been that we haven't really seen much regulation sort of go through for good or for bad uh, that is related to sort of some of these questions of online content, data privacy, even competition. Um, we've seen a number of them different proposed, but haven't sort of seen them go through the legislative process, minus the some executive orders that President, former President Trump did and that President Biden has pursued now. But at the state level, you know, I think we've seen some concerning laws, particularly if you're looking at Florida. Florida is really one of the first of its kind in the U.S. There are similar laws internationally, such as in Brazil, but uh, that law would, if companies suspend accounts of political candidates for longer than sort of two weeks, they um, can face certain fines. I mean, the law was paused because of, you know, First Amendment concerns, which is something we expected. And similarly, sort of in Texas, we're, we're seeing something like that in, in, in Utah. 
there was another law that required sort of mobile devices to automatically filter out pornography. So it's kind of, you know, a whole range of different content these laws are getting at. Um, but I think it shows in the U.S. that states are increasingly interested in, in regulating social media platforms. You also see that on the data privacy side, but also speaks to how, you know, I think at the state level, there's a lot of really problematic legislation that sort of pops up or gets pioneered and then it gets picked up at the federal level. Well, and, and I suppose maybe one of the reasons we haven't slid out of the free category is because we do have courts and the Constitution, which, you know, of course, quash some of that. Let, let's maybe move across the uh, globe a bit to another big democracy, India, um, which is now in your partly free category and has really, I think, kind of begun to, to, to slide rapidly backward. Give folks a sense of what went into your assessment of what's going on in India. Yeah, so India, I think, is a really concerning environment for internet freedom. Um, It's been partly free for a few years now, but it's just been on, uh, this year's the fourth consecutive year of decline. I think it's important to mention that the decline in internet freedom that we've seen predated sort of the decline in democracy in India that has been alongside the ruling party there, you know, Prime Minister Modi, their turn really toward Hindu nationalism and sort of the prioritization of their base at the expense of certain marginalized communities in the country. So looking at India, I mean, the country has sort of led in internet shutdowns around the world, um, which I think surprises a lot of folks that the world's, you know, largest democracy, as people say, actually shuts down the internet more than any other country in the world and has really normalized this policy. So we even see in more authoritarian contexts, governments will say, oh, India shut down the internet, so it's fine for us to do it too. And they're doing Um, it in local and regional contexts, right? To to kind of punish people for specific things? Yeah, in India, it's interesting because most of the internet shutdowns are the decisions coming from local authorities or state authorities versus the central government doing it. So a lot of times the different justifications that the government will give relates to maintaining public order, you know, amid protests or to stop alleged cheating on exams or or they use public order national security a lot. So the most recent one, you know, this year was around these massive protests by farmers who were trying to oppose an agricultural reform that they didn't agree with, that they said was really going to hurt their their living. So in response, you know, the government shut off the internet in, in the capital and some other places nearby. Some of the other issues I think in India that are really concerning has to do with sort of content manipulation, the ways in which the ruling party can manipulate information um, and sort of has these like really big groups of supporters that they can galvanize to sort of spread information um, that is manipulated or sort of harass opponents, whether that's opposition parties or journalists. And then this year, you know, I think one of the big news stories out of the country has to do with these really concerning intermediary guidelines and digital media ethics code. That's that's a long mouthful. We'll just call them the IT rules. They impose these new, really broad obligations on social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Netflix, you know, you name it, and sort of requires them to further police content on their platforms and also would require them to undermine encryption in order to comply. And, you know, we can dive into those provisions, but they sort of came about at a time where Twitter was really trying to push back against the government's uh, request to remove content of civil society groups and journalists um, amid those farmers' protests. So so there seems to be some sort of, you know, kind of like political motivation to get, get some of this content removed. 
And so on the very other end of the spectrum, we've got China, uh, which is, again, uh, sort of dead last on your on your report. You know, you list as a as a you know, fully oppressive environment. What's it like to be a Chinese citizen on the Internet? Chinese authorities really perfected the model of digital authoritarianism. You can you know, say they pretty much created that model. Um, they have been the worst of the worst in our index for seven years in a row. You know, if you're online, you can't access Facebook. You can't access Signal, which just blocked this year, Clubhouse. You can't access, you know, a lot of independent news outlets or civil society groups. You can expect sort of your internet history and, and your activity to be moderated or moderated and monitored um, at pretty much every turn. And you can expect, you know, if you speak out too much or if you criticize the ruling party or you criticize um, the government's response to COVID, you're at a real risk of um, being arrested and detained or, you know, facing physical violence and detention. So it's a really tight environment. Like I said, the, the worst of the worst. And I think this year, what's really interesting is you kind of saw the pursuit by government officials to go after their tech industry, which, you know, hosts some of the, the world's biggest tech companies. Um, you look at like Alibaba, companies like that. So this year, you know, Chinese authorities have among the most aggressive in addressing sort of monopolistic practices or market abuses by some of the big companies in the country. Um, and it's really been made clear that the ruling party is kind of uneasy with the increased power the tech sector has had. And there have been some signs of like political motivation of sort of these efforts. I mean, you have cases in which entrepreneurs who have challenged sort of the government or critiqued the government's response to the pandemic, then being sentenced to, you know, in one case, 18 years in prison on corruption charges. The Chinese Communist Party has really said or signaled to their tech industry that you either get with it and you tow the party line or you're going to face the consequences, whether that's through really tight regulation, criminal penalties or some other sort of oversight that really hurts their bottom line. So when you look at the swath of this across the world, I mean, one of the things that you chronicle is is just the increasing body count. You know, people uh, hurt, imprisoned, you know, subjected to violence, uh, physical assault disappeared uh, as a result of their online activities around the world. And I mean, some of these statistics are, are, are really, I think, pretty shocking for an American on some level that now uh, more than 70 percent of the world's online population you know, lives under a government uh, that has arrested people you know, due to their, their, their speech activities. And we're not talking about necessarily you know, criminal speech activities here, um, but, but more free expression and, and participation in society. So I think you know, this is my fourth year during this report. And if I remember correctly, each year we say, in a new record high, this many countries arrested folks for political, social, religious speech. And every year I'm like, oh my God, that number is so high. And then this year again, we, we have another record number. And then sort of the same thing is happening when we look at things like uh, physical violence in response to people's online activity or the number of countries that are blocking social media platforms or shutting off the internet altogether. And I think it speaks to how, you know, in the early years of the internet, you think about the Arab Spring, we really had such great sort of optimism about what the internet could be. And then the past, you know, few years, five years or so, you see where governments are, are figuring that out. They, they realize that internet, the internet can not only challenge their power and, and work to undermine their consolidation of power or their 
you know, position in politics, but really that they can use the internet for their own ends. And that's what I think this year you also see too, it's not just the internet that they can use to their own ends, it's tech companies and sort of these platforms. So I don't see it, you know, really getting much better. I think we're moving toward a, a space in which what we call Freedom House is cyber sovereignty, not just we at Freedom House, but a lot of folks. But this idea that the internet may not remain borderless, but instead more and more countries are sort of building borders and walls around their own internet so then they can police it um, at their own will. And you think of the great firewall in China, but you also think of Iran trying to do this, Russia with their sort of sovereign internet sort of approach, even post the coup in Myanmar, you see signs of it. So sort of the, the breaking down of this borderless free internet the concept that the internet's borderless is really what has allowed for the free exchange of ideas, um, for civil society groups to organize together, for protest movements to organize together, or just for people to connect with their loved ones when they live abroad um, or, you know, friends and family abroad as well. Kind of drawing back to that connection between Washington and its policies for Silicon Valley and this broader trajectory, um, what do you think needs to happen here? I mean, clearly we're we're part of the problem right now. Uh, we're kind of contributing to this dynamic perversely, you know, that as we allow our tech firms to be entirely, well, almost entirely uh, unfettered by regulation, that we're kind of contributing to this broader phenomenon. What, what should we be doing? At a fundamental level, I think the U.S. government, particularly uh, sort of Congress and the executive level, to work more robustly with democratic governments around the world who have sort of the like-minded goals of internet freedom and, and human rights online. So working with our EU counterparts, working with folks also in the global South. Um, there are some really great regulation around the world for the U.S. to learn from that we can, you know, get work with civil society groups, work with like-minded politicians um, who are have the same goals as us. So that's, you know, sort of step one is this cyber diplomacy type thing. But Fundamentally, I also think we need to fix our problems at home. It's hard to go around the world and advocate for a free and open internet when we are also challenged by disproportionate surveillance, violence um, during protests, police violence during protests, and sort of some of these like politically motivated rhetoric against sort of some of the social media platforms, even though, you know, a lot of times they probably deserve it, but there's that political element as well. And what we see in our research is that governments learn from each other. So you'll have a country, for example, Singapore, with their fake news law that passed a few years ago, cite a Germany law and the NetsDG law on that. And we'll say, point to Germany and is like, well, they did it. So we're going to do it. And of course, this, the Singapore law is a lot more restrictive to free expression. And there aren't sort of the same rule of law components happening in Singapore compared to Germany. So you have people watching us, governments watching us, and when we make certain moves, using that to justify their own ends. And I think one of the examples of that, um, to just get really specific here, has to do with President Trump's executive order to halt transactions between U.S. individuals and entities with the Chinese-owned social media platforms, TikTok and WeChat. Um, that would have just effectively banned the apps. We were really concerned about that because this is some issue that we, you know, try to work with civil society groups, work with the State Department to, you know, around the world, the message is don't block social media platforms. That's a disproportionate restriction on free expression and access to information. And then at the time we had a president who was ordering just that. So it's great to see, you know, President Biden has rescinded that order and is looking at, I mean, there are 
there are genuine risks to privacy and even free expression when you're looking at some of these Chinese-owned apps just because they are required to follow some restrictive Chinese laws um, around data privacy. So sort of President Biden's approach is, is to start an investigation into these apps to figure out what are the risks so then we can create sort of solutions that look at things that won't be as disproportionate. So one of the things we'd love to see again I'm beating the same drum, but a federal privacy law that limits how all platforms can use data they collect um, and other things like increased oversight and transparency of platforms so we can see how they respond to content restriction requests. So yeah, that's just one example I would flag. It does seem like there are kind of like, you know, everybody I talk to, it's, it's privacy and transparency. Those those seem to be the main main things that people want. You know, and yet on the other hand, you know, you kind of look at, you know, you mentioned the kind of comparison folks are making. Um, I do suspect that there are many people looking at the U.S. and at the volatility in our system at the moment at January 6th and saying, you know, we don't want that here. We don't want uh, that kind of information environment here. Yeah, I think that's a big concern. And what, you know, sort of we saw post the January 6th attack and, uh, when sort of social media companies decided to take then President Trump's accounts offline, suspend them or indefinitely remove them, um, you sort of saw a pop up of laws around the world that were trying to uh, respond to companies' power, right? So you look at Brazil, um, and in Brazil, you know, Bolsonaro has really been able to use particularly YouTube, but WhatsApp and other platforms to, you know, become politically popular during his first election and has since used these platforms to spread COVID-19 misinformation. He's claiming electoral fraud already for an upcoming election. Um, And you saw a new order just a few weeks ago um, from him that would tie the hands of social media platforms to moderate content. In that, you sort of see how uh, they're kind of fearful of what Facebook and Twitter sort of did to President Trump that it could happen to him as well. Getting our house in order is going to be really key for us to promote internet freedom abroad. Um, and we're seeing some moves in the right direction on that. We have Freedom House will continue working for and really the whole sort of robust civil society internet freedom community is advocating for. A depressing set of trends, some very concerning statistics, an enormous amount of information, uh, which is very valuable to anybody that wants to understand these issues in depth all across the globe. Is there a good story? Is there a positive nugget that you can give my listeners to uh, perhaps lighten their load on this Sunday? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of positive stories, you know, I mean, there's countries like Costa Rica and Taiwan who have really sort of figured it out. Um, I mean, both have some issues, but figured it out how to protect a free and open internet. Um, You know, Taiwan specifically, I find really interesting because their, their information space is constantly sort of pushing against disinformation and cyber attacks emanating from China, and they've been able to respond to it in some really innovative ways. And I think, you know, looking more broadly is there are some really good regulation models out there for how do we tackle these issues. I don't know if any law is perfect because I don't know if there is actually a perfect law because this stuff is really new and we're going to have to figure out, try some things, see if it works. If it doesn't, change it. Um, But you see some really interesting competition policy coming out of places like Germany, you know, you see some things coming out of South Korea around competition. That's really interesting. I'm fascinated to sort of see what's the progress of the Digital Services Act as well. Um, that has some really good transparency sort of provisions in it. So I don't think all the news is bad news. It's just sort of 
the bad news is overtaking the good, I'd say. Well, let's check in again in a year and let's see if uh, a lucky report number 13 might contain some maybe turning of the tide. <laughs> I've got my fingers crossed. I look forward to that. Thank you very much, Allie. Those sounds are from a drum and dance corps that performed yesterday in downtown Brooklyn. I hope it was a bit of a palate cleanser for all the gloom. In Canada, the Department of Canadian Heritage has proposed a new legal framework to deal with, quote, harmful content. The framework would establish new regulatory entities with broad authority over speech and information shared on platforms like Twitter or Facebook. To learn more about this proposal, I spoke to Michael Geist, Professor of Law and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, and Daphne Keller, who directs the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Michael and Daphne told me why Canadians should be deeply concerned about this new proposal. One note, you'll hear us refer to the upcoming election in Canada. That election took place on September 20th. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau won a third term, but his Liberals once again fell short of a majority in the House of Commons and will form a minority government in coalition with other parties. Here's Michael and Daphne. Hi, I'm Michael Geist. I'm a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where I hold the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. I'm Daphne Keller. I direct the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. So we're here to talk about this proposal in Canada around how to deal with online uh, harms. And I have to say, this has been quite the week if you study online harms with regard to bombshell revelations in the Wall Street Journal all week long about various harms on Facebook and uh, Instagram and really just some extraordinary stuff. Everything from people following Facebook ads into slavery through to how the platform drives you know, political outrage through to you know today information about how COVID-19 uh, misinformation and and dialogue on Facebook has has bolstered vaccine hesitancy. So we've got a problem here, right? It's not the, the, there's a there's a there's a major issue. These are these are real problems. Yes, <laughs> these are re- these are major problems. Um, and and I don't think the question when you start thinking about well, question is whether there's a problem. The, the right question, of course, is what to do about it. And you know, I think the concerns. Uh, for those that have expressed concern about what we've seen uh, here in Canada right now in terms of what the government is saying it will do if re-elected. We're recording this a few days before uh, election vote in Canada. And so uh, right now, the Liberal government, which is the one that really put this on the table, is is leading in the polls and seems likely to come back, uh, potentially with a majority government, if not with a minority government. But either way, it's pretty clear that what they've provided by way of consultation is probably better viewed as a roadmap for what they have in mind. And so the, I think the, the concern with that roadmap isn't that isn't people doubting that something ought to be done, that there are genuine, very real concerns and real harms taking place. It's, it's how they're proposing to go ahead and try to deal with it. I totally agree with that. And 
you know, if I can perhaps foolishly tell a joke about Canadians on this podcast, you know, there's a joke that goes, how many Canadians does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is one, because Canadians have a reputation for basic rational problem solving, you know, for not introducing unnecessary, uh, you know, bad ideas in, in solving problems. And this, what we're seeing with this proposal is the opposite. It's taking a very real problem, uh, as Justin described, with illegal and harmful content online, and then responding to it, not by looking to the known toolkit of legal mechanisms that, that can be used to respond to this, but by sort of making stuff up. And that's, that's a terrible way to go about lawmaking, and, and there's no need for it. We actually have a lot of precedent, a lot of human rights literature, a lot of sources of information to come up with better models. So, Daphne, you've pointed out that a lot of the ideas that are here, you know, resemble, and we'll get into this in some detail, but they resemble some of what you call the worst ideas elsewhere in the world. But, Michael, can you maybe just back us up a a bit and explain the process that Canada went through to arrive at this proposal and kind of what the dialogue and the discourse over these issues has been to get to this point? Yeah, that's a great question. And I must admit, counter to the to Daphne's joke about Canadians, I, I don't know that we've had all that much of a rational discussion around developing the of de- developing these policies. I think what is clear is that, you know, just for those that aren't aware, the, the current government, this liberal government has been in power since 2015. Uh, when they came into power, they were, they, they were not a, they, they were not focused on internet regulation in any significant way. They to the extent to which they were thinking about those issues, they were much more focused on things like net neutrality, uh, around innovation, around being seen as, as pretty progressive. But I suppose what's viewed as progressive has changed in recent years, and in part because of some of the kinds of stories that you just cited. And I think there were a series of incidents that that really sparked a, a dramatic shift in the way our government started thinking about some of these things. Some of these were world events, the events in Christchurch, for example, and some of the influence uh, coming out of leadership from New Zealand. Similarly, some uh, some of the contacts between Macron and France and Canada also, I think, uh, sort of had the effect of beginning to shift Canada towards more towards a, a much more aggressive regulatory approach, as well as, frankly, some of the abuses that uh, certain MPs, and in particular, one cabinet minister in Canada, Catherine McKenna, who's not running for re-election, uh, faced some of the stuff was really terrible, both online and offline. And when you talked about it with different uh, members of parliament, it, it became clear that when they were thinking about this issue, they were in many instances thinking about her and saying, this is not acceptable. We have to do something about it. So it kind of personalizes the issue for many in a very real way. That said, the, the government basically said, we want to engage in in addressing some of these online harms. There were a lot of back-channel discussions with any number of different groups, but before this public consultation, there was no public consultation. There was no broad discussion uh, within Canada. And I think one of the the sources of concern that people raised was if you're going to move in this direction with such significant implications for things like freedom of expression and for how the internet functions in Canada, surely there ought to be some some sort of broad dialogue with the public before you jump 
been with that kind of legislation. I'm not sure that we bargained for a consultation in the middle of an election campaign, though. And um, that's, I think, had a, a real had an effect both of what is likely to downgrade the amount of participation and raise real questions as to whether or not this is a legit consultation or a bit of theater, since the government has a pretty strong sense of where it wants to go on the issue. Can you also just for the sake of my mostly American listeners, describe what this particular Department of Canadian Heritage gets up to? So how should an American understand where this framework is coming from? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure that there's an equivalent department or cabinet minister in Canada to the, in the United States to Canadian heritage. Now, in the past, Canadian heritage certainly was focused on issues like copyright. They've been very involved in that. And of course, the, you know, the state of any number of different cultural sectors, the music industry, the movie industry and the like, they're interestingly involved with libraries as well, although rarely take positions that are supported by libraries. Some of those policies tend to be shared responsibility in Canada. So we have also a Department of Innovation, Science, and Economic Development, sort of an industry minister. Um, It would be more akin to your commerce uh, department. And uh, many of those policies tend to be shared by those two departments. And so the effect of having shared responsibility tends to mean that you kind of get both perspectives get a sort of commercial type perspective, innovation perspectives, and some of the more protectionist cultural perspectives kind of are both brought to the table. And so you end up coming, perhaps coming up with some of those more reasonable balanced approaches because you're kind of getting those competing policies debated. What has happened in Canada over the last couple of years is the government has basically handed over the digital policy keys to Canadian heritage. And that has turned the issue into one largely around cultural sovereignty, um, now, that's not exclusively within the online harms context. We've had a number of issues uh, that that have really fallen within that broad mandate. But I think it's really had a pretty significant impact in, in shifting where the dialogue is. And sort of just one last point in Canada, there is Quebec, and then there's the rest of the country very often when it comes to some of these political issues. Heritage is often viewed as being very close to the province of Quebec, um, it's a French language, uh, predominantly French language, language speaking province, and uh, they tend to take a different approach on many issues. Very often, the heritage minister has tended to come from Quebec, and so much of the framing tends to be around some of the these Quebec-based issues who are not averse, certainly, to, to taking on some of the large tech companies, that's for sure. Daphne, this particular proposal caught your eye in Stanford, and uh, you immediately saw parallels to other things that were happening around the world and concerns that uh, human rights groups have raised about some of these proposals. Can you walk through a couple of these main problems with the proposal that you've pointed out? So one problem is that it requires very rapid takedown of content that's alleged to be illegal within 24 hours, which is a timeline I don't think I've seen in any other country. Germany has a requirement of 24 hours for quote unquote manifestly illegal content and seven days uh, for things that require more careful review. But the, the problem with that is that platforms get all kinds of false accusations uh, or just erroneous accusations claiming that things are illegal when they're not. And there's tons of research on this. You can go you know, look, look up the, the data and they're natural incentive is to just comply with that, to go ahead and take things down in order to protect themselves from from liability or potential liability. And so that creates this big margin of 
controversial speech being taken down or a speech that someone just doesn't like being taken down. We've seen instances, you know, of businesses trying to get rid of criticism of their practices, of governments trying to file false claims to suppress journalism and police brutality videos. There's there's a real problem there. And putting a rapid takedown obligation on platforms coupled with a risk of, you know, big financial consequences if they fail to take things down is a recipe for that kind of problem. To be clear, like it's usually framed as a free expression and information problem, and it is, uh, but it's also, you know, a problem about fair process before the law. It's a problem about invasion of privacy, potentially, depending how platforms go about enforcing uh, obligations like this. And, and it's also a problem about disparate impact because platforms uh, get incentivized and under the Canadian proposal, perhaps required, to deploy automated tools to try to detect illegal speech, which is not something we really have technology to do. And we know that those tools fail a lot, take down the wrong things a lot, but we also know there's a you know, growing body of literature documenting that it tends to have disparate impact, that you know, attempts to take down hate speech, for example, disproportionately silence people speaking African-American dialect English, So there are problems about equality and privacy and expression all bundled up in here. I think Daphne's done a good job of highlighting where some of the concerns are. I just I just would note sort of the frustration, I think, for for many is is both with the policy, and again to harken back to one of your earlier questions, the the way in which we've arrived at this endpoint in terms of being where some of the policy is. Daphne rightly notes that that we know some of the harms that come, let's say, from these rapid takedowns without building in the necessary due process. And yet, you know, the sense that certainly we've got from the Canadian heritage minister, Stephen Guibault, who was the person who's been leading the charge on some of these issues, uh, is that, you know, this was placed in our earlier platform. We made a commitment to 24-hour takedowns, and so we're going to go ahead with it. And, you know, this notion that you're, you're confined to the policies that you described years earlier when you hadn't had a chance to study it and without incorporating the kind of evidence that you hope you'd have in, in sort of an evidence poli- evidence-based policymaking environment is just enormously frustrating. It's like everybody knows what the, the likely outcomes are with this proposal, and yet there's a determination to run ahead with it anyway. You know, the model here for how to do this right, it's it's not the United States and not here telling Canada to follow U.S. models at all. It's more the EU. Now, European Union lawmakers have been conducting detailed consultations and inquiries on this stuff going back to 2011. You know, they have 10 years uh, of experience and input and, and data, and the proposals that they're coming out with make a lot more sense. You know, I don't agree with everything about them, but, you know, it's just basic things like don't treat technical infrastructure providers as if they were Facebook. Those are, you know, two different kinds of businesses that interact with content in very different ways and you can't subject them to the the same rules. You know, there's a list, and I was on Michael's podcast a year or so ago talking about this sort of toolkit of things you could put in laws if you want to start regulating uh, content on platforms more. There's a list. Uh, it's well developed in in Europe and lots of other places. And I think if you know the Canadian process slowed down and did a genuine consultation, they could come up with some perfectly reasonable ideas. But they they haven't done that. So you've mentioned you know the 24 hour takedown provision, some of the problems with 
you know, proactive monitoring, filtering, you just kind of obliquely referenced, I think, the ISP blocking problem, uh, which we could maybe talk about in a little more depth. But what about uh, the sort of relationship to, to law enforcement that's present in this proposal? Is there, is there anything we should be looking at there? This is really scary because there's a requirement for platforms if they identify content that might violate the law in one of the category, five categories currently listed in the bill and potentially more categories later. If they find people who might be engaging in unlawful communication online, they have to turn those people into the police. That is remarkable. And it's, you know, every version of laws that give platforms legal responsibility for user speech has potential collateral damage for regular people. And the big question when societies pass these kinds of laws is, you know, what kind of trade-offs are we going to make? What kind of collateral damage will we accept because it's so important to make this content regulation law? You know, can we tweak the law to reduce it? Uh, But usually the collateral damage is about somebody being inappropriately silenced. Here, the collateral damage is potentially vulnerable people getting flagged by private platforms for speech crimes and turned into the police. I've written about this in the context of regulation of violent extremism and the risk that the people being falsely flagged and turned in are going to be disproportionately people speaking Arabic, people talking about Islam, people talking about immigration policy. You know, there's this clear risk of disparate impact, you know, people whose immigration status is uncertain, who are vulnerable for reasons like that, getting turned into the police because of something that they said online, that is not a good scenario. Michael, this also seems to create some new regulators or new regulatory powers. What what types of new entities would exist if this were to somehow come into effect? And this speaks more broadly, actually, to where the Canadian government has been going. I mean, they've they've tried to create a huge, several additional layers of bureaucracy associated with this. And, that, and that's not to suggest that there isn't some value in, in ensuring that you've got expertise and expert reviewers as part of a, a process, especially a due process, one that is in, imbued with real due process. But we've already talked about, we don't see some of that. There certainly isn't any of it in what uh, Daphne just described in terms of the potential automated reporting back to police, which is truly absolutely astonishing. And in the, that notion of trade-offs, there, were just, there just isn't really much thought at all given to what some of those costs are. In this case, the, the vision is to create a digital safety commissioner uh, where the public could uh, file complaints with that commissioner. They'd be empowered to hold hearings really on any issue, uh, including non-compliance or frankly anything that the commissioner believes is in the public interest. The commissioner would have broad powers to order the, these online providers to do any act or thing, so to ensure compliance. So they've got very broad powers. In fact, they've even got the power to conduct inspections of companies. So this notion of uh, you could actually see you know, we're going to knock on the door, both of the companies and even some who may be related. It's the inspection powers that effectively extend to anyone if there's reasonable grounds to believe that there might be some information related, say, to software or algorithms or anything else relevant to an investigation. So, you know, you've got a very powerful new 
Digital Safety Commissioner. You've got, in addition, something they're calling the Digital Recourse Council of Canada, which also the public can file complaints. Um, and they would they would play a bit of a role in terms of deciding what kind of content gets taken down. Uh, although it's in the proposal that some of those hearings could even be conducted in secret under some circumstances. And so th- this kind of layer of, of new bureaucracy, when combined with other proposals the Canadian government has made that include creating a new privacy tribunal to mete out penalties to a more empowered telecom regulator in Canada known as the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, it's akin to the, the FCC in the United States, um, is, you know, is, is a government in some ways saying, okay, here's the roadmap. We're going to create all these new powers. We're not totally sure how these are going to play out. And so we are going to create all kinds of new bureaucracy and then leave it to those bodies to figure it out, which I think has, has a real impact in terms of uncertainty in the marketplace. I think it sends a message to those that aren't even operating in Canada to say, you know, is this really a market that you want to offer up your services and take on risks when it's going to take years for some of these issues to unfold both before the, this new bureaucracy and then in all likelihood before the courts, because I don't think there's any doubt that some of these uh, new rules will be challenged before the courts on constitutional grounds. The other problem with passing legislation that fails to really resolve these very difficult questions and kicks them down the road to regulators to decide later is it's legislators, you know, telling their constituents, hey, I solved this problem and not taking accountability for the actual hard judgment calls, which will get made later on, you know, by a regulatory system that people aren't paying that much attention to. It's, you know, it, and this is very similar to what's happening in, in the UK with their online safety bill that sort of kicks a lot of the hardest questions down, down the road to Ofcom. And up to a point, that's a legitimate thing to do. There are hard questions. Maybe expert regulators should look at them. But the UK proposal and the Canadian proposal go way too far in legislators just passing the buck and kind of claiming victory, but, but having somebody else figure this out later on. Not too dissimilar from some of the proposals in the United States as well, uh, trying to kind of force the, well, suggest that the FTC should go and do, you know, periods of review in order to come up with rules for what are relatively lightweight proposals from Congress. Um, So maybe that's somewhat similarity there. Um, There's some similarity. The the U.S. is so averse to giving power to regulators that I I think we're less likely to have a model like this. And, And in a way, that's a failing on the U.S. side. Like there's a real role for regulators here, but the role is not for them to make the fundamental, like hugely consequential decisions that legislators should be making and be accountable for. I want to spend a minute or two on the likelihood that this may pass, whether it be a sort of constitutional uh, in Canada and, you know, what things we think should happen or what really should be pursued. Uh, But before we do that, let's maybe let's hit this ISP blocking provision, which I know is a particular concern of yours. It is. And, you know, we've been this issue around ISP or website blocking has been around for some time in Canada, more in the copyright context. We've seen some of the very large rights holders pushing for ISP blocking. A couple of years ago, they had a proposal that they took to the regulator to allow for blocking, particularly streaming is where they're or unauthorized streaming is what they've been focused on. Now they've gone to the courts. They've actually started to obtain some court orders and are even now seeking these so-called dynamic injunctions that allow for active changing of blocking, which raises a host of issues. All the while, when we've seen this play out in the courts, 
governments have been really reticent to certainly endorse any sort of website blocking. If anything, it's been the opposite. It's been, you know, from we're, we stand for net neutrality. We're deeply concerned about uh, website blocking for any number of, of important reasons. Part of it's net neutrality, but but so much of it happens to to be from sort of lived experience when you start engaging in this sort of blocking. And over blocking is, I think, an inevitability of of these kinds of systems. We just know that once you set these systems up, you're likely to block more than just the narrowly targeted content that you concerned with. And in this instance, the government is saying that they are they will move forward with, they'd say it's a last resort, but once you've implemented this system, it's there where there will be the capability of ordering website blocking. And you know the, the implications here are enormous, both on this particular issue for the for some of the reasons I've just mentioned, for the overblocking, for the costs associated with this, for the kind of what sort of due process do you have before you even engage in this? But the precedent gets established that you know Canada is comfortable with requiring this sort of blocking. You know, it's quite clear, and you hate to start talking about slippery slopes, but it is very clear that it's it, you don't you don't you don't have to move very far to know that that same those same kind of arguments will rear their head in a whole range of other issues. And once the ISPs have implemented these kinds of technologies, so once, in effect, the public has paid to create these kinds of technical capabilities for that blocking, the argument will be, well, you can already do it for this issue, do it for some of these other issues. And, and I should note, one of the other things that makes Canada particularly susceptible to this is that our largest ISPs also happen to be our largest broadcasters. And so we have this convergence of content ownership and carriage, such that in many instances, the this companies will take, you know, are basically speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And they have in recent years tended to be far more comfortable with website blocking and protecting their content side of the business than what you find in other jurisdictions. And so while elsewhere, you'll often find ISPs stepping up to the plate and saying, you know, our role is as a as is common carriage. It's not to play a role in terms of getting into this kind of content moderation or content blocking. In Canada, it's very often those same ISPs under the guise of their content ownership that are actually pushing for exactly those kinds of powers. So companies like Rogers would kind of fit in that bucket. Rogers and Bell are the two most obvious ones, yes. And so those would be the largest cable provider in Canada and the largest phone provider in Canada. Let's just talk for a second about whether this can move ahead. Is is it likely that it will? I know comments are due on September uh, 25th. Uh, will we get past that point? What happens after that? And ultimately, does this proposal, is it compatible with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? So those are good questions. I, you know, as, as I mentioned, we're, we're recording this during an election campaign in Canada. Uh, the deadline for this consultation comes to a conclusion after that election will have itself concluded. And so we'll have a pretty good sense at least a few days before the the close of the consultation as to whether as to at least who forms government. And certainly it's the case that if the, the current liberal government is reelected, whether as a minority government or as a majority government, uh, that they will move ahead with this. Um, I think there is a sense there is some amount of support. And if they have a majority government, then under our parliamentary system, there really isn't a whole lot to stop them. There, there will be here, there may be hearings and studies and legislation gets introduced. But at the end of the day, it's quite clear the votes are there. Um, and so it's, you know, it just comes down to how open are they to modifying some of the kinds of things that they've put forward? They've made it, it pretty clear that this is a legislative priority. Indeed, 
if they're if they are successful, I would expect that we would see legislation introduced before the end of this calendar year. Probably not till the very end, but uh, sometime late November, December, before they take a break for the holidays. And if that's the case, then we'll be spending 2022 in Canada, amongst other digital policies, focused on this legislative process. It's a pretty long process in Canada. Both the House of the Commons will have to review the bill and approve it, and then it goes to we have a Senate as well that will conduct those reviews. So there, they will there will be opportunities for people to be heard. Heard, but depending on the makeup of the, the party, of the, of the parliament, it's entirely possible the government will make it very clear this is going to pass. It's We're willing to entertain the possibility of making some modest amendments, but not much more than that. And if the experience with some of the earlier legislation over the last year or two is any indication, the government didn't seem all that uncomfortable saying, you know what, we're going to put this forward. We're going to leave it to these new regulators to address and the courts can address it, but we kind of want to wash our hands of it. We want to put up that mission mission accomplished sign saying we introduced and passed legislation and if it's unconstitutional, so be it, the courts will deal with it. Uh, personally, I don't think that's the right way to engage in, in, in lawmaking. You'd hope that you'd be convinced that your legislation will pass constitutional muster, but uh, we've certainly had, had hints that the goal is to get it passed, not necessarily to have it be effective or to have it sustain what seems like an inevitable court challenge. If it goes, if it passes in roughly the same form that the proposals they put forward indicate it will. So, Daphne, let's just assume that that happens. Let's assume that somehow this passes. Uh, let's assume that that maybe it gets beyond the uh, judicial review that we suspect, based on this conversation, may come along. What about uh, human rights conventions and other agreements that Canada's uh, engaged in? Will it will it work in that regard? So the, some of the clearest guidance on this comes from the inter-American uh, human rights system. And Canada is not a signatory to the inter-American convention. So this isn't, you know, but binding on them. But there's very clear guidance going back to 2013, at least, um, saying that rapid takedowns of user speech with no court involvement are a problem and maybe such a big problem that they violate the convention. Proactive filtering with clumsy tools that it's going to you know, block too much lawful speech, also a problem to the point that it could violate the convention. Uh, same with site blocking, the ISP blocking that Michael was just talking about. Uh, looking outside our regional human rights system, the European human rights system has, for example, multiple rulings from the European Court of Human Rights condemning countries for engaging in site blocking by ISPs. There are rulings against Russia and against Turkey for doing the kind of thing that, that Canada is talking about doing. Um, there isn't sort of a court system to look to for the, you know, the global international convention. Um, but there, the free expression rapporteur, uh, the office of the free expression rapporteur has also issued multiple reports with guidance, you know, expressing the same concerns. Rapid takedowns are a problem. Proactive filtering is a problem. Um, so I would hope that, you know, if and when this comes to uh, litigation in Canada um, under the Canadian Charter, that this international human rights precedent would be very important in thinking through how Canadian rights analysis applies. Michael, is there a lot of support or opposition to this proposal from civil society groups in Canada? Are you seeing a lot of activism around it, or should we expect that later on during the legislative process? 
Well, certainly some of the groups that I speak to coming from uh, you know, civil liberties perspectives are deeply concerned with, with some of these proposals. That's, that's, that's certainly clear. It's, it's admittedly difficult to know just how, how much we're going to see in part be, in terms of some of the activism, in part because this is all taking place during an election campaign. And, you know, that's that, that, you know, frankly, the idea that you would hold these consultations at the same time that we're going through, of course, a fourth wave plus, you know, the plus people being focused more broadly on election campaign, you know, does lend itself to this view that there, there's just a bit of theater associated with this. And I should note that this actually isn't the only consultation that the government has con- been conducting at this time. There's actually been three related to digital policy related issues, one on contributions from a news perspective in terms of whether platforms ought to be paying to support news organizations, as well as one focused on copyright and AI. So there's been a lot happening. It's been, I think it's a bit odd uh, at best to be holding these consultations at this point in time. Uh, That said, if this does move ahead and things kind of normalize, I would expect that we would see a significant amount of of concern and opposition. And you know, Daphne mentioned it a bit earlier that you know one of the the real unfortunate ironies here is that the very groups that the government thinks it is seeking to protect with some of these proposals are the ones that are most likely to be harmed. When you think about some of the reporting mechanisms and some of the other issues associated with that, and you know, if some of those groups, you know, I think increasingly begin to recognize that. You know, this is a case of be careful what you wish for, because they have been asking for the government to act on online harms, um, but at the same time, begin to recognize that these proposals actually could boomerang and have a real negative effect. That's, I think, in some ways, when we might see the government pausing a little bit and saying, OK, if, if this isn't actually going to achieve what we're hoping and the very constituencies that we are we're hoping to help to help uh, are telling us that there's a problem, then maybe there really is a problem. So there might be a listener to this podcast who's listening and maybe they just read that series of articles in in the journal or they're concerned about these issues for other reasons. And they say, you know, I hear what you're saying. All sounds very good. And yet people are dying. As we learn from these articles, they're, they're encountering all kinds of harms, all kinds of issues. What in the world should we do? How should governments move forward? Uh, what would be the right way to kind of come to some kind of agreement with these big tech companies that are perturbing our politics and providing a platform to various illegal activities? What in the world should we do? How how should we move forward? So I, I think I would point again to the process process that's going on in Europe, uh, and and I mean in Brussels, I don't mean in France. You know, France is kind of an outlier uh, within Europe on this stuff, so it's kind of interesting uh, that French policy has been so influential in Canada. But you know, the European Union started. Uh, is starting from a situation not unlike Canada's legal situation, where broadly speaking, uh, when platforms know about something that is illegal, uh, for example, that's you know hate speech or Holocaust denial, they have to take it down. I mean, Canada's rules are more complex, so I don't want to oversimplify them. But the you know that Europe has realized that this has a bunch of problems, including the problem of platforms removing too much. And so they're shifting toward a more procedure-based set of rules saying, you know, here's how people should provide notice to the platforms. Here's how the platform should let the user know when their speech has been taken down and give them a chance to appeal. You know, here's how courts should be involved when it's not obvious what's illegal. There are a bunch of kind of procedural mechanisms to look to that are about getting 
dangerous and harmful and illegal content offline. Like that is very much the goal of the European process. And that's a legitimate goal and something we should all be working towards. But if we work toward it with sloppy tools that have all these unintended consequences and collateral damage that weren't necessary, you know, that we could have avoided, that, that's a grave mistake. I certainly agree with with that. I mean, we we do need we need a more robust policy development process, and and Europe provides a pretty good example uh, of some of the ways that we could do that. I, I think there are some other things we could do. First, I think in Canada we need to stop treating all of the forms of so-called illegal content. We've got this bucket of several different kinds, which would include things like um, hate speech and terrorism-related content and child pornography, uh, as if they're all the same. They're not all the same. The kind of approaches that are necessary to try to address those issues differ. I mean, even even within your question, you, you cited a number of different kinds of speech. And I would posit that, you know, misinformation is just fundamentally different than child pornography. Our rules are different. The idea that we just need one approach to try to address all of those sorts of things just uh, doesn't, do, I, don't, I don't think takes into account the fact that there are some of those differences. I, one of my podcast episodes with Cynthia Koo was was really focusing on the need to do a better job of, of distinguishing between those different kinds of content. So I think that's certainly part of what we need to do. I also think we need to do a far better job of both dealing with data collection, privacy, the kind of information that these companies have and the way that they make use of that information. Our laws are not, I don't think, prepared to deal with those companies effectively. And I think these companies do need to be held to account, particularly with respect to the policies that they put forward, the transparency that's there, and the need to ensure that they live up to the kinds of obligations and commitments that they say they're going to make. I mean, what we've so often seen is that they say one thing and then it's a sporadic implementation of the kinds of things that they do. And that itself represents a problem. And lastly, in the same way that I would say that I don't think we can look at the kind of content all the same. I don't think we can look at all the companies as being all the same either. There are differences between a social media company and a search company and a movie streaming company. And at least in the Canadian context, they are all simply labeled web giants and uh, and that's designed to be sort of derogatory term uh, that speaks to the need for regulation. But the kind of approach that I think you take, whether it's a Netflix or an Amazon or a Facebook or a Twitter or a Google, it's not to say that there shouldn't be rules for all of them, but suggesting that it's the same rules for all of them, I think, again, misses some of the underlying complexity of what's actually taking place. I don't know what the timeline was for when Macron uh, was sort of promoting France's model in Canada, but if it was, you know, 6, 12, 18 months ago, then the model he was promoting was the one subsequently struck down by France's top constitutional court for violating France's constitution. Uh, so that's not really a good starting point. We've got an assortment of really bad starting points. and <laughs> But, you know, the, the sense was at least coming into an election that this this played well. And so that's why we started to see them. Uh, that's why they've continued with. And, you know, the, one of the risks that we have is that, you know, should they be reelected, then they, they sort of say, well, this is what we ran on. So this is what we're going to do. And so you you start from from a really difficult starting point, one that, you know, has been discredited in many respects, but there's just, there's no off ramp in some ways. Well, by the time folks hear this, we'll likely know the outcome of that election. Uh, and we'll have to watch this issue as it continues to evolve over the next year. So, Michael and Daphne, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks thank so much you for, for having, having me. me.
sounds are from a band called Radio Hirocho, which played recently in Washington Square Park, part of a Jalopy Theater special event. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. R Street Institute, a D.C. think tank that advocates for free markets, recently set out to explore what a properly designed multi-stakeholder process to explore problems at the intersection of harm arising from online content moderation, free expression, and online management policies and practices would look like. With funding from the Knight Foundation, they issued a new report, Applying Multi-Stakeholder Internet Governance to Online Content Management, by authors Chris Riley and David Mora. I spoke to Chris Riley about the process for the report and his views on regulation in this space generally. I'm Chris Riley. I'm a, a senior fellow of internet governance at the R Street Institute think tank based in Washington, D.C., and I'm also the executive director of the nonprofit called the Brave New Software Project. Chris, how did you get into this line of work? What were you doing before R Street? Uh, before R Street, I spent just under seven years doing public policy work at the Mozilla Corporation, maker of the Firefox web browser. I was the first full-time policy person hired by the organization back in 2013, and over time built a global team of mission-oriented public policy advocates. Uh, I'm very proud of the work that we did at Mozilla. Way back before that, I was a computer scientist um, and then decided to go into law and policy to work precisely at this intersection of issues. And what brought you to R Street? How'd you end up at the R Street Institute? They reached out to me after I parted ways with Mozilla. I started talking to them. I uh, had known Eli Lair, the president, and some of the current and former R Street team members. I've always been a big fan of the think tank. I think their approach is high integrity and rich intellectual depth to these issues. And the the way the think tank is run is, is I think, quite exceptional. And I, I particularly like their focus on making markets work and finding pragmatic solutions to meaningful problems. So how'd you get interested then in this particular project, trying to kind of figure out how to do multi-stakeholder policy discussion around content moderation? The idea probably came up when I first met Eli years ago when I was still at Mozilla. We're all part of the policy space. We, we get to know each other and we talk. And I have a long history working in internet governance and within various forms of multi-stakeholder institutions. I attended the Net Mundial gathering in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that was organized by the Brazilian government. And, and still to this day, for me, is one of the most I think, innovative ways of trying to bring different stakeholders together and marry those two values, which are often intention of inclusivity and decisiveness of actually trying to reach an outcome while honestly bringing to the table people who have completely divergent viewpoints. So I probably at some point riffed on this sort of thinking around inclusive multi-stakeholder governance to Eli. Um, and it came up from the first time I was talking with R Street last fall that I would take over and inherit this project, which the Knight Foundation funded for R Street and would recast and, and sort of continue this work forward to, to now its eventual conclusion with this report. So I'm talking to you on a week where content moderation is in the news for a number of different reasons, but one reason is because there are this series of exposés from the Wall Street Journal about Facebook's practices in particular, 
around content moderation. It's really extraordinary. Just looking at the the reporting, it covers everything from content moderation around elections to how the platform deals with hate speech to how it deals with uh, various forms of uh, difficult to contend with content around sex trafficking, drug cartels, violence across the world. This is just a hugely complex topic. I mean, you're dealing with 200 jurisdictions, national jurisdictions, all sorts of different variety of jurisdictions underneath that, different laws, different policy uh, orientations, different relationships to free expression. How in the world can we ever come to terms with how to do content moderation across the entire globe at the scale that these companies are trying to do it? Yeah, life's easy question for me there. Thanks, Justin. I think it's important to look at this from a few different dimensions. So first of all, Let's, let's give Facebook credit. For better or for worse, they have built the sort of biggest single virtual, like, or in any format, place uh, for humanity to come together that the world has ever seen. We've never before had a network that had billions of people in it. It's mind-boggling to think about the scale that they have built. And yeah, and mind-bogglingly complex to think from their perspective for a minute about how on earth you can manage that. So content moderation or content management, which is a frame I like to use more because often content moderation is a frame. People think of it as taking content up or putting content down. As this report reveals, the the space of content management is far richer than that. There's a far bigger landscape of ways in which a company sitting in a place like Facebook does can shift these scales um, and the ways in which this content is experienced by users. It's always going to be imperfect. I often compare it to cybersecurity you can just as easily have the same kind of existential questions. My gosh, how can we possibly defend ourselves against cybersecurity threats? Because nothing can ever be perfectly secure. And that, I think, is a fairly true statement. Nothing can ever be perfectly secure. But we can't just wash our hands of it and give up and go home. We have to continue to invest in making our systems more and more secure. And in the same way, recognizing that content management is an exercise which is forever doomed to be imperfect and that there will always be bad things that happen. We nevertheless have an obligation to continue to invest collectively in making it a better and better ecosystem, in finding the gaps and finding the places where something can be better and in having a conversation about how we can make it better, how we can mitigate costs and unintended consequences that come from those mitigation measures themselves and really dive into this complex multidimensional landscape with a broad range of perspectives so that we can all see around our own blinders and work to make things better. So you set out to kind of come up with a process or a prototype process for how different groups, whether it's government, industry, civil society, could, could come together around the same table and hopefully come up with an idea about how to do that. But you also set some things to the side. So I think that's important to point out. You didn't suggest that this multi-stakeholder approach could necessarily solve everything. So what, what's off the table? Well, a lot of things, as you say. I think it's important up front to recognize that nothing is going to be perfect, and we need to all agree from the outset that there will continue to be mistakes and harms and, and that our shared goal is minimizing those. Um, for me, I think it's important at the outset to say This isn't an exercise designed to result in creating text of a law or a rule that everybody's going to agree to. We're not all going to agree. It is impossible to reach a law or a rule that will achieve perfect agreement and consensus, and that's okay. We nevertheless have to pursue this exercise as well. 
I think it's important, uh, rather than focusing just on the things that are off the table, to think about the things that are sort of not even near the table, right? Think about the ocean that surrounds the island on which this table sits, if my metaphor is not getting too stretched out. I wanted to approach this process, so did, by the way, the stakeholders who I reached out to to engage with, as something intentionally separate from the political conversations that we're having. We're having these incredibly heated, sensitive, angry, vitriolic conversations around Section 230 in particular. And more than anything else, I and others wanted to sort of step away from that a little bit and say, it's it's not that we're saying don't have those conversations. Those conversations need to happen. But let's let's focus on the rich substance of the policy in front of us for a minute as something separate from the text that could or should go in a particular law. So it gets back to your point of what's off the table. This process was not meant to try to write a law. And I think that that set of assumptions from the very beginning was important. It also wasn't meant to say, hey, Facebook, you're doing this wrong, right? It was important from the outset of this exercise for me to take people's mindsets out of at least a little bit, the day-to-day of the lived problems they were doing. So for example, I love the people at the Trust and Safety Professional Association, which has been around for a little while. I also love the people at the newer Digital Trust and Safety Partnership. I have friends working at both these institutions. I think they're going to do fantastic work, particularly working with individual trust and safety practices of companies and how they can make their contextual improvements. I didn't want to replicate what they were doing. I wanted to take a step back and say, hey, look at this ecosystem, look at the trends, look at the bigger picture things that are built on top of the day-to-day, but look a little bit more big picture than that. And so we wanted to focus on that and not any specific instances or examples of practices by individual companies. Also left off the table a couple of other things. I mean, you know, whether these companies are too big, whether they should be broken up, those types of questions that are kind of outside of content moderation policy, you kind of put that to the side. Yeah, privacy as well, I would say. Um, and, and on some level, I think that these things are all very interrelated, particularly because this is, this is policy and politics. And at the end of the day, so much of that comes down to power and who has power and how you allocate it and how you use it. So I don't mean to pretend that they're not related on deep levels. However, to make individual progress on them, I think you do have to divide them up when you're looking at substantive policy. And by building out the frontiers of substantive policy understanding at each of these issues separately, we can come back together after those processes are done and appreciate the whole with a greater degree of richness and and accuracy, I believe. And so even in this prototype process, you came up with a few ideas. Can you tell us about one or two of those just to give folks a sense of what the process produced? I'd love to. So I'll take uh, two of them together. Um, I believe they're propositions two and four, though I confess I don't have the text in front of me. Those are the provisions looking at increased granularity and transparency. And so one of the propositions is about content policies ex ante. When Facebook says to you, here's our policy, you know, don't attack other people, don't post images with, with uh, sexual content and so forth and so on. That policy is a very challenging exercise to write same as privacy policies have long been challenging exercises for service providers to write. They want to maintain sufficient generality in them that as the nature of bad human activity continues to evolve as it always will, that they have the flexibility to go after things that are not consistent with their values and with the culture that they're trying to maintain through their services. And yet at the same time, if those policies are too vague, people don't know what to do. 
They don't know how to behave. They don't know how to get that so difficult to articulate culture vibe from the service provider. So the flip side of that, which is the other proposition, is individual notices of violations. How specific are you in indicating the the way in which a person has violated the rule? How specific are you in giving them opportunities to rectify that? And again, there's a trade-off there, which is very rich and which we tried to unpack a bit in this process, where greater specificity comes at greater cost and maybe doesn't scale well and maybe actually enables weird kinds of denial of service equivalent attacks in the space where people are intentionally trying to add cost into the system. Um, And also, by the way, can increase gamification, people's ability to make minor changes and get the same kinds of bad content in. But again, we want specificity so that well-meaning people who run into problems understand and can learn and can be better. So that's one. uh, I'll I'll just give that as a rich example of this conversation. You put a lot of effort into thinking about the right balance here, um, not to give the companies too much balance, yes, but also not to kind of give their critics too much weight either. Can you talk about that? I mean, you know, there's, I guess there's a couple different ways to think about that. I mean, I might come back at you and say, well, you know, the, the companies ought to be much less uh, represented on some level that, that, you know, the interests of civil society or, or governments ought to be, ought to dominate the conversation. I think part of the response to that is this is an all paths welcome kind of problem space, right? Each individual strategy or methodology of inclusion may not meet someone's needs. So let's do all of them. This is a really hard problem space. Lots of different efforts like this are, are worth exploring and researching. And at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. So I feel confident in the, in the balance of inclusion in this process based on the balance that I see present in the output. But your mileage may vary. I don't mean you specifically, Justin, but um, other people may, may want to see a different balance in, in the processes that they imagine. And again, I think all are welcome here. Now, what do you do after a process like this is, I think, where that question really gets interesting and important. So we're pretty explicit in the write-up for this. Um, I was explicit in talking to people about the project as it was uh, being developed and executed, that we imagine a nice natural next step from this would be a U.S. government-led multi-stakeholder process, the kind that Secretary Raimondo referred to in her confirmation hearings about bringing different stakeholders together. I think there's a nice opportunity um, the U.S. government has done good work like this in the past with NIST, the National Institute for Science and Technology's extensive cybersecurity framework development process over several years. And when you have a government-led process, it creates different expectations in terms of inclusivity and balance and transparency and open process and so forth. And I think there's a really nice value add to that. Um, The process that our street was doing didn't, didn't have any of those same constraints and so I was able to operate it on, you know, a think tank, small NGOs, budget, and processes and methods and not at the scale of the U.S. government. So you do suggest that maybe uh, another part of the U.S. government could take this work forward um, or that might be an opportunity under the NTIA. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how would that work? I'd love to. Uh, NTIA or the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, just to spell out the very, very long acronym, um, is a part of the Department of Commerce that uh, under the Obama administration in particular, developed a sort of a role for itself as almost like the the tech policy think tank within the executive branch. I saw uh, and and worked with people in NTIA who were doing some really great, deep, substantive policy analysis of tech and internet policy issues. 
And I think that under uh, President Biden, NTIA is poised to take up a similar mantle on many of these issues. So through the Obama administration, in fact, through the Trump administration as well, staff at NTIA convened their own multi-stakeholder working groups. Um, John Ferdy led a really fascinating one uh, working on facial recognition, for example, collecting these kind of inputs and, and perspectives together in one place. And so I do see a real opportunity here for, for this kind of work to continue through NTIA as part of commerce under, under now Secretary Raimondo. I might challenge you on that a little bit and say well enough to have a good set of ideas about facial recognition from NTIA, but there's no reg- regulation, no federal regulation on yeah. facial recognition. There's no real rules yeah. that still got yeah. companies like Clearview that are running roughshod and working with law enforcement in whatever way they might like. Every other day, there's a report of, of some biased uh, outcome from a facial recognition system. Yeah. You know, it, I don't know. I mean, is there is not to, not to kind of put this on you, but uh, even even in the context of a, a federally run, run process, is, is there any hope we can get to content moderation principles or policies that would find their way into the real world? I do think that there is value in the potential for immediate term benefit improving practices that comes about through the conduct of a multi-stakeholder process. And these are things where it's very hard to measure the impact of the process itself, right? What happens in, in that execution is someone from a civil society organization or an academic institution will make an, a, an observation. Maybe it's written, maybe it's verbal. And someone from an industry association or uh, individual company will say, hey, you know what, I never thought about it that way. And they can ch- take, that, take that back and maybe very quietly behind the scenes, a policy gets changed and an immediate improvement is done. So I, I don't, I'm not going to over-rotate or over-promise that that's the main way by which a multi-stakeholder process can deliver value. But I do think it's important to recognize that that can and I believe does happen. It's also, I think, very clear that there is an incredible appetite for changing what I think of as hard law, regulations, legislation in the United States, as there has been in Europe for some years, by the way. It, it's a difficult thing to do. Right. I think most of the regulations and legislation that we've seen in the United States in this space of content management, I think most of those ideas have been bad. Right. The Florida state bill, for example, had so many problems with it um, before you even get to the to the curious theme park exception. Many of us welcome the idea of new laws and regulations, but we have to figure out how to make them good. Right. And, and that's the that's the trickiest part here is how do we get to that outcome? It takes longer than I think any of us would like to try to figure out what the good outcome is here, because it leaves us in this this it leaves us in this state of question, of doubt, of uncertainty. And the void generally is filled outside the United States. This is where the EU comes in, as it has on privacy, as it has in so many other ways. And the EU already has its uh, equivalent legislation, the Digital Services Act has made it through the commission, is being amended in parliament right now. And I'm sort of hopeful actively that a something good can come out of the US government as a, as a piece to complement how the EU is looking at this so that we can get more regulatory and, and philo- philosophical perspectives on the role of government in this space. But yeah, I'm not gonna qu- say it's easy. I'm also not gonna say the US has done a very good job with it in any sense over the past few years. There's also that uh, Jan Schakowsky, Kathy Castor uh, bill, the uh, Online Consumer uh, Protection Act, I believe, that seeks to get the FTC to kind of regulate content moderation practices and force the companies to be a little more specific about how they do 
uh, content moderation. Do you see that having any hope and and fitting in with what you're thinking here? Well, so I'm not that plugged into the the mechanics of the legislative process right now. And of course, wearing my 501c3 hat, I'm not going to take an explicit position on any active bills under consideration right now. So I'll sort of say more generally, I do think that there are bills that have been introduced in Congress that have a shot of passing. And I do think that there is a good direction to pursue in using the Federal Trade Commission as the U.S. government agency to be active in this space. Now, that has lots of questions. Like, I think the FTC is is sort of the, the, the least concerning of any existing U.S. government agency to engage in this space. I think the FTC has a very good history of bringing technologists in and uh, evaluating privacy concerns and privacy problems with a degree of expertise that I really appreciate. I certainly prefer seeing the FTC being the agency looked at to take up this mantle compared to, for example, in the United Kingdom, where that uh, responsibility has been given to Ofcom, the telecom regulator, right? I also prefer it to uh, being handed to various sort of general content and traditional media type regulators, just because this is a different space and really looking at it from a technology expertise specific perspective is the best hope that we have of getting to a good outcome on these issues. Chris, thank you very much for the report and for joining me today. That's my pleasure, Justin. Thanks for chatting. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.